0: Welcome to the Rev Engine Podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders get clarity on how to align sales and marketing, build a high performing revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth for their organizations. I'm your host, Jeff Davis, author of award winning book Create Togetherness and founder of Rev Engine. Let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody, it is Jeff Davis again with another episode of the Rev Engine podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders to transform their revenue engines, align sales and marketing and accelerate revenue growth. Today's guest is Steve Patty. We met many, many years ago. I've always really enjoyed his perspective. He's been both a marketing leader as well as a sales leader. So I think he will have that lens of helping us really understand kind of the, the revenue engine in totality. Uh, He was also on uh, the previous episode of of my other podcast, the alignment podcast, and that was actually really, really well received. So I wanted to have him back on our new show with Rev Engine podcast to further kind of talk about his expertise and to see how things have changed, how the market has changed and what's different than we talked about in that last episode. But to give you a little bit of context, as I said before, Steve's been a CMO in multiple industries, which is what I really love about his background is that he's been able to have a perspective of not just one industry, He's looked across multiple ones, and currently he's an on-demand CMO and GTM leader, which he'll probably get to at some point in, in our conversation and kind of tell you what he's up to today. So I always like kind of, at this point, like to get out of the way and let my guests kind of tell a little bit about, about themselves, their background, how they got here, and then we'll dive into the conversation. Steve, it's all you. Well, thanks, Jeff. Great to be back.
1: Uh, I'm sure you've got a variety of important folks that you've had on since my last appearance, but you know it's always great to be back because to your point, it's super challenging, both in the sales and marketing and the total revenue game right now. And, you know, 2023 is gonna prove even more challenging with a lot of things that have gone on. So I'm glad to be back.
0: Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Really looking forward to your insights on those gonna be some good stuff.
1: Yeah, man, I appreciate it. And and a little bit of background on, on me for the listeners, and you can certainly find me on LinkedIn. Over 30 years of combined experience starting out actually in sales. And then ten years down the road in the career, uh, went to grad school, got into the marketing game. Certainly before all the sexy tools that we've got in today's landscape. But to your point, have worked in major uh, publicly traded multi-billion-dollar brands. I've started and led as an entrepreneur to multi-million-dollar companies. I'm an adjunct professor at Trinity University, teaching entrepreneurship on the sales side. Actually, how to monetize your startup ideas. And I actually, um, as you had mentioned as well, work is a fractional CMO for companies both in the agency space and technology, fintech, and um, actually industrial AR, VR currently with the latest client. And those clients are both North America and global, as I've got clients in Central Europe and South America. So pretty busy.
0: Yeah, you're a busy guy. So again, we thank you for taking the time to be on the show. So let's just jump jump right into it. You wrote an article, I believe on LinkedIn, actually, uh, and I wanted to dive into this one because you you made a... I would say provocative statement, but also had some recommendations that I'd love to kind of get your perspective and a deeper dive into. And so you really talked about this as I would call it a, a shift in mindset as far as like your going to market strategy. You were telling brands like you don't control the conversation your buyers do. And either you join those conversations and add value or be excluded while your competitors are invited. And this was such a provocative and, and relevant statement because we really are seeing the shift of companies just pushing uh, content and pushing things on buyers and really struggling with transitioning to being a part of the conversation, adding value, kind of being playing from the back of the room, so to say, because it feels like you're being passive. Right. But I think there's a fine balance between, you know, you actually being active in the market and and engaging with folks and really getting their attention and keeping their attention. So you go through a couple of recommendations that I'd love to kind of go through each of these. There's about five of them. And just get a little bit of deeper dive from you on what you mean and Mm -hmm. what recommendations you have for revenue leaders out there. So the first and foremost, we'll just go through these in order, is stop selling and start helping people buy. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, that's actually kind of a mantra that that others that came before me, Seth Godin and many others have been preaching really for about 15 years. But as it's spelled out there, there is a difference between educating and sharing insight, building rapport, building trust that leads someone to conclude, I like this brand, I may like the salesperson or persons representing the brand, Uh, the insights or the things that they're saying really resonate with me as a buyer, and it begins to plant the seeds of introspection and reflection, where the buyer begins to conclude their current way of doing whatever they're doing, the piece of tech that they own, or a business process, whatever, may not be the best way. Yeah. And so it creates the case for change where they begin to think about, I might need to consider a new way. And you now kind of kickstart the flywheel of intent that gets them then leaning in and wanting more information, engaging, et cetera. And that's a, you know, every brand talks about wanting to do it. Few do it well. The other approach, and I'm going to use a little hyperbole here, but it's kind of what happens is, hey, Jeff, I just connected with you on LinkedIn beginning of this week. I'm with XYZ company. I've got some great stuff you know I'd love you to buy right I'd love for you yeah. to, can I get a meeting with you next week Jeff I know you're going to probably be winding down for you know the holidays whatever the problem is is that unfortunately too many sales reps trying to meet quota just don't have the patience too many marketers being pushed to hit MQL targets don't have the patience to build relationships that lead to purchase orders yeah one of the entrepreneur courses that I teach at the beginning of the semester I use a statement that trust is a process not an event You can't have one interaction with somebody and trust them enough to open a million dollar PO typically. So it takes multiple installments. So when you educate, when you help people buy, helping them to understand the challenge, helping them to frame how to think about it, sharing insights about how others in their industry may be thinking about the same thing, building rapport, and I think most importantly, demonstrating the patience that you're not trying to beat them over the head for the PO on the first or second date, it goes a long way. To building the kind of credibility and engagement that ultimately you do need to close a sale because at the end of the day we're all right selling something but are you selling or are you helping people buy that little mantra or that statement i think can be easily validated based on look at the messaging and look at the various mediums that a given brand uses in the market is it all push messaging brand controls the narrative look how great we are look at our awards or is it buyer-centric, where the brand is the vessel, the conduit that is bringing information to the buyer, connecting the buyer with other peers, helping them to think about how to drive business outcome. And invariably, there's a halo effect that accrues to your brand and trust begins to build. And that is an effective way to really kickstart meaningful revenue relationships.
0: And so what would the conversation sound like when you talk to a sales leader or revenue leader who is trying to change their approach, because we all know this, you know, SDRs or frontline salespeople are being pressured and many times. Mm -hmm. This is the reason that the the communication style Mm -hmm. that they're doing is, do you want to talk today? Do you want to talk today? Do you want to talk tomorrow? And they're trying to close this deal or quote unquote, build this trust in a really finite amount of time. It's a different approach when you say, I want you to build relationships, I want you to build trust, but also keeping in mind that we, we do have quarterly goals. How do you help a, a sales leader or revenue leader think about that differently?
1: And you mentioned SDRs and whether it's a BDR function, SDR function, or some hybrid, yeah. and those acronyms get used kind of interchangeably. But, but let's, take about, let's take a look at the functions of qualifying something marketing is sent over to you in the sales organization, right? You, you're not even sure, frankly, if it's a legit lead. Right, Um, And whether that is, you know, whichever term the SDR or the BDR does the qualifying, right? I mean, we could get off on a whole MQL marketing qualified lead tangent, but in theory, an MQL is supposed to be marketing qualified. The fact is they never are. So you've got a whole set of conversations where sales is actually trying to do the qualifying marketing should have done. But then you've got a different set of conversations to quote, make the number, which is more AE or account exec driven, where there is some declared intent. Right, Sales is validated. It's a legit lead. And you're somewhere between a discovery meeting, maybe um, a broader stakeholder requirement gathering meeting, maybe a proposal, and maybe you have a real opportunity in the opportunity object in CRM that you're trying to get to to closed one. Right, So we'll call that a a bona fide set of sales conversations. Clearly, one of the keys to getting sales deals done is maintaining engagement. The worst thing that can happen with any lead in a pipeline is they go radio silent. They won't return an email, they won't return a phone call, whatever the case may be. So the advice that I have for sales leaders is, hey, look, there's a certain amount, depending on your sales cycle, let's say you've got a 10 or 12-week sales cycle, it's, it's, it's not short but not long, there's a certain amount of cadence or you know, uh, weekly engagement you probably want with a lead to stay top of mind. But if every one of those touchpoint you know, Slack messages or community outreach messages or emails or whatever is... Hey, Jeff, how are we doing on the deal? Hey, Jeff, did you get my email? You know, how close are we to the PO? You can nag someone into losing the deal. Yeah. So you're, you're trying to balance, well, if I want seven or 10 or 14 day cadence of contact, but I don't want to wear someone out where I actually unsell the deal, then I typically will sit out and say, well, show me the communications that you send, you know, the what you say, and then the medium of how you deliver it. Let's think about interweaving In between following up on, have you got your VP's approval? Where are we in the contract process and all those things with, oh, by the way, Jeff, I remembered in our first conversation, you mentioned that you may be under the gun to reduce XYZ expenses by up to 10% in Q1. Here's a really interesting McKinsey article with three really good ideas I thought you might find useful. So there's an example of sharing something that says, I listened to what you told me were your business objectives. I remembered that. I took a little time and effort to find something, Jeff, I thought you might find useful as the buyer. And it gives me a reason to stay in touch with you because, yeah, at the end of the day, you know I'm trying to sell you something. Right. But I need to vary the what we say and how we engage where this quickly becomes perceived by you as the buyer is a very one-sided, self-serving conversation. In fact, it's not a conversation. I'd argue it's more of a, a, a monologue here instead of a dialogue. So I'm, I'm you know, constantly asking for the sale. So I think it really comes down to, to balancing that. Yeah. And that goes back to sales enablement because reps don't have time to find those McKinsey articles or those great pieces exactly. of insights. So you've got to enable them with a toolbox of things that is meaningful to build trust with the buyer while maintaining engagement
0: through the sales cycle. Yep. So number two, you say, think like a talk show host, facilitate discussions. I really, really like this. So I want to hear a little bit more about what you mean through that statement.
1: Yeah, well, you know that's kind of an easy analogy for people to understand. But you take a look at a a Joe Rogan or a Jimmy Fallon or anybody who you know makes a lot of money, having a lot of very interesting people from all walks of life and disciplines on a medium, whether it's a podcast or you know broadcast television with, with with the Tonight Show. So they're masters at doing what you're doing right now. You're finding people that you think have something interesting to say that aligns with the needs of your audience you're co-opting those people to join a channel or a a, a medium that that you run. You're going to navigate and guide those conversations to stay on track and make sure they deliver value for the audience. And at the end of the day, you're going to then find more like them to create consistency, whether it's weekly podcast episodes or whatever it is, so that people begin to trust Jeff Davis for topics on revenue or Joe Rogan for the provocative geopolitical topics of the day, or whatever the case may be. So, for brands, I think they're missing an incredible middle ground. And and the middle ground is this for decades, it's, you know, we want to talk about our case studies and our awards and our this and our that. And and we've all known they're largely being tuned out. Forrester and Gartner's got plenty of data. Gartner published last year that you know less than twenty seven percent of buyers you know want to talk to a sales rep right? right. Basically, three out of four don't even want to talk to a sales rep, and that goes into high consideration purchases up to half a million dollars or more. People just want to do DIY mm-hmm. because the sales rep conversations that they anticipate they're going to have don't bring value. So, as a brand, it's not binary. Well, we've either got to control the narrative or we sit in the back of the room to quote what you said at the top of the episode. The middle ground is we can be very active is, is a, you know, a host at the table. We just don't have to do all the talking. So imagine you're a software company selling supply chain software. Now you could run a podcast and webinars and write white papers and eBooks and everything branded with your brand. And it's all about you and your products and your quote, thought leadership. And what you think the five-year future of uh, high-tech manufacturing supply chain is and what's going on, and it's you, 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 you. And there may be some good nuggets in there, but the problem is most buyers don't trust vendors. They trust peers more than vendors. Mm -hmm. How different would it be if that supply chain software company said, hey, we're going to bring you a quarterly kind of supply chain in-review best practices guide. We're going to curate this through interviewing 15 or 20 experts Supply chain experts across multiple industries, right? And we're going to host a podcast that it's an accompanying thing. So the quarterly reports, the companion asset that goes with the podcast. And all they do is they don't pitch product. They gather and distribute and deliver insight. Now, invariably, if you're a director of supply chain in an ICP, right, ideal customer profile target account, and you start listening, you start consuming the content, you know, you're going to know who the support, the, the sponsoring vendor is. You're going to invariably, out of intellectual curiosity, probably visit their website. Hmm, not familiar with this company, and you probably will appreciate that they resisted the urge to sell because instead, yeah. what they're doing is bringing together your peers in the industry that you're too busy, as a director of supply chain, to go call 20 guys. You know, women, it doesn't matter, right? You know, what do you guys use in cetera. But this brand, this, this vendor is doing it for you, and that's what I mean about. Being a curator, being a change agent to bring together the ICPS, the ideal customer profiles that your customers represent,
0: it's their peers and yeah. make them the rock star, and that can include some of your best customers as well. Yeah, and I think that's great. The other thing you made me think of when I read this was, you know, a lot of people are calling it dark web or dark social, and private communities. It's just this really right. this push to folks getting together in a non-biased, non-vendor or you could say vendor agnostic environment. And we really are not, vendors are right. not really a part of that conversation. However, there is an opportunity to tap into that. We just have to, to your point, resist the urge to talk about product and really provide value. So that's what I also thought about in addition to what you said, because more and more, and I see them and I'm a part of some of them, there's just you know a need for people to connect with each other that are in like situations to really just have, a conversation of like, what do you know? What have I learned? How can we help each other versus being pitched by product, which invariably is going to be biased? Well,
1: you're you're exactly right. In the courses that I teach at the university level, I tell them, hey, look, having led sales and marketing teams at a VP level, I can tell you this, effective marketing and effective sales are about conversations, not presentations. The more that you can kind of lower the formality of I'm the seller, you're the buyer, sit through my presentation, or to your point, I'm going to join a social community. And if the moderators are doing a good job, most of them, right, will have kind of codes of conduct on you're here to answer questions, not pitch. You're not going to troll. You're not going to do these things. So vendors can be very effective in a lot of these communities, Slack channels, and and other types of groups. But again, you got to put the hat on of, you've got to be adding value to the community, not there solely for self-serving reasons to sell. And they'll find that over time, the quickest way to learn that memory muscle of how do I do that as a brand that maybe you're a sales VP or marketing VP for eight years in a company and their culture is just bang people over the head to buy things. One of the greatest ways that you can unlearn bad habit is join these communities where you've got to
0: show up, engage and add value or your accounts closed or frozen. Yes, Steve, I think that is really great. And actually, that answer kind of talks to some of the other points that you talked to, which I'll go through really quick so we don't have to belabor them because you actually covered them already. The uh, third one was extract impactful quotes and stats from your ICP discussions to create eye catching headlines, uh, which I think is great. Because again, it goes back to your point of like, I'm listening to what you said, I'm listening to your business challenges, and I'm presenting information to you or presenting things uh, that are your exact words. Uh, which lets them know that you're actually paying attention and engaged. And that also goes back to that developing trust over time. You also talk about develop authentic relationships that result in ICP wanting to contribute content. Again, relationship trust. And then the last but not least was join, activate many ICP communities. So roundtables, ask the expert podcast, et cetera, to learn what is important to your ICPs. And so what I think in that last one that I, I, w- I will hit on that I think that we didn't directly address is that not only when you create these opportunities are you building relationship, but you also should be learning and listening and using that to put into your communication with the deal, right? Uh, and I think so. So often, and I've been guilty Absolutely. of this myself as a as a marketer, uh, as a salesperson as well, is that you want to get your message across. Like I want to make sure they know about this, and I want to make sure that we talk about this. That we sometimes don't use this as a golden opportunity to really listen and learn, and then you know, infuse that into our communication and and with the the potential buyer or customer and really deepen that relationship. So I think it's a great article uh, for those that are interested. We'll we'll put it in the show notes and they can take a look at it. Anything else to add to that?
1: No, I think you really hit on the last one really, really well. And I'll, I'll go so far as to say anybody that is in a marketing leadership role that has responsibility for product marketing and roadmaps. If you think about it, when products are typically developed, there is some form of Formal research, it goes into talking to customers, talking to buyers, feature sets, functionality, testing price points, all of that. But those are point in time data gathering exercises. So if you've got a nine month development cycle on a product, you collected insight that guided your product development, whatever it may be. Nine months is a long time. A lot of things can change. So what happens is product marketing usually works with sales enablement. They work then to say, here are the key positioning and features and benefits of the product or the Mm -hmm. solution that cascades down to the marketing and demand people. It cascades down to sales reps, but the world has changed since nine or 12 months ago. And at the end of the day, the insight you get as you pointed out by having a pulse on a daily, weekly, monthly basis with those communities, with those ICPs, continues to evolve and inform. So when a sales rep says, hey, I got to make a quota or a marketing person says, hey, I need to drive a quota on MQL targets or lead targets. Like what do I need to put in the next round of advertising or LinkedIn organic posts or eBooks or podcast topics? Well, instead of guessing at what's important and probably getting it wrong half or more of the time, you can be right most of the time because you can crowdsource that by having that pulse, that feedback loop with your ideal customers. Yeah. And when they come on and appear, they're going to obviously talk about what's important to their peers. You don't have to guess about, hey, programming, right? Run a show. (laughs) So it, it just takes so much pressure off and it's the obvious thing to do. But the brands are punch drunk on, you know, we know best and we're going to control it, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so true. So I want to shift the conversation a little bit because I know I've seen a lot about just overall revenue strategy and we've had some conversations just about some of the key flaws in a lot of organizations in just their overall revenue strategy. So what are you seeing as some of the the key issues that senior leaders, revenue leaders really need to take a hard look at and potentially change because they're just not as effective as they used to be? Yeah, I think I'm seeing really
1: two things and I suspect I'll start with the first. We'll probably get to the second here in a few minutes. So the first is, if we think about a traditional life cycle that we're taught in business school around customer acquisition, then retention, and then you know, you've got your expansion and then ultimately loyalty and advocacy, mm-hmm. it's a great chart, right? Because that's what it is for most brands. But the obsession is they, it's all on the acquisition, right? Coming out of the tech industry, I heard this term, new logos. Uh-huh. I hate it because it really kind of diminishes the value of a customer. Really? Are we talking about a logo? Are we talking about future lifetime value streams and real people that work at real companies, right? But I think the first flaw in in the tech industry is renowned, guilty as charged on this, is there is an overweighted obsession with customer acquisition, despite the fact that it's easier to sell to an existing customer. Why? Because you've got the legacy relationship. The master services agreement is in place. Hopefully, if you've delivered well, they've got, you know, all the things we know, right? But there's an unhealthy obsession on that. Now, what I've seen interesting the last few weeks in LinkedIn is comical, but, but sad, frankly is a lot of demand and sales leaders saying, oh, hey, you know, this coming year, we need to really get more serious about customer success and worrying about churn. Well, you don't worry in the 11th hour about losing a customer. You over-service them right. or at least you know, give them great value from day one after the ink is dry in the contract. You don't wait in a subscriber business to month 11 and then say, oh, thinking about churn. So you get a lot of knee-jerk You know, to the economic conditions right now around, oh, we need to think more about retention. We should have been thinking about retention the minute you acquired the customer. Or it's, hey, we're not getting as much new customer acquisition and retention may be okay. So we need to focus more on expansion sales, right? Upsell, cross-sell, next best product. Some of these things that can even be kind of algorithmically orchestrated. Yeah. Okay. Those things are important. But what bothers me is the reactions to, hey, we have a slowing economy. Therefore, dot, 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 fill in the blank. Because the economy's slowing, now we need to focus on retention. And because the economy's slowing, now we need to you know, think about land and expand or, or, or these expansion sales or loyalty and advocacy. And I would argue, no, economy up, economy down, whether it's Monday or Friday, Sunday or th- Thursday, you need to take that life cycle approach of saying, look, they're all important. They're yeah. all important. Because if you're trying to drive lifetime value out of a customer, it costs a lot to acquire them. Sure, you don't want them to churn. I get it. There's okay. land and expand revenue off expansion sales and upsell cross-sell. But look, how many times do sales reps need reference customers, right? Yeah. To go back and feed the front of the exactly. acquisition process, exactly. right? So if I'm, if I'm a sales guy working on a $400,000 deal, and I know, Jeff, that you're a big advocate of our brand. You've been very happy, a four-year customer. I'd love for you to be take a customer reference call. Right, So the only way you're going to do that is if you only hear from me once a year when I need a reference call, it's probably not going to happen. So I would argue that there's revenue from acquisition, clearly, but in slowing economic times where people start to push out, buying cycles, they're not replacing IT as often, or they're trimming some other expenses, whatever it may be, particularly. Yeah, man, it puts a lot of raised importance on all of those other areas in the life cycle. It is the retention. It is customer success to land quick wins. It is renewal. It is upsell, cross sell, certainly loyalty and advocacy, because those happy customers go in those private communities. Mm-hmm. They come on your podcasts, yep. they participate in your ebooks. They sit at the private CIO dinners at the fancy restaurant and say, Oh, these guys are fantastic. I've been a six year customer.
0: So, yeah, you need all of it. And that's in alignment with Forrester came out with recently where they talk about, you know, the trends are coming ahead, obviously, with the economy and the way things are going. But one of the things they talk about is the focus and shift to customer health, which is essentially, right, retention, cross-selling, upselling, that sort of thing. Because if you're in an industry where realistically sales are flat, revenue is flat and people aren't buying, that has, you have to start over-indexing on those things. However, to your point, we should have been doing them already. Right. But I think what they're saying, what they're arguing is that we'll see most organizations really start to overindex for that now because they're compensating for the fact they're not getting net new logos as quickly and as rapidly as they were in the past.
1: Right. And the sad part of this will be as we come through an economic, you know, every economic cycle is a cycle for a reason. It, it, it returns right. out when times get good again. The problem, you know, will be what people go back to old muscle memory habits. It'll be about acquisition. What I always hope for, and I've been in enough of these cycles over three decades of doing this, probably like you, that my hope would be that they would say, hey, look, good time or bad, man, I mean, having great customer success, great listening, all, all these things we've talked about in you know, this engagement, really endearing
0: ourselves to our buyers, man, that's that's good advice all the time. But you know, we've been talking about like the importance and uh, the prioritization of CX customer experience, for quite some time now, do you think that most organizations have really internalized that you know, customer experience is actually more important than price and product, or are we just kind of like talking the talk, but not really walking the walk and walking, changing the way in which we gauge buyers uh, and customers?
1: You know, I think it's a conversation that's a healthy one and it's still very viable. I see Nick Meta, the CEO of Gainsight, you yeah. know, um, I'm LinkedIn every other week talking about this and others because there's also the raging debate where does CS, you know, customer success even sit? Yeah. Does it sit over in operations and support? Does it sit in marketing because it's high parallels with customer marketing? Or does it sit over in sales because... You know, it's and then you got the whole compensation issue of well, who, if there's an upsell and cross-sell, owns that? Does customer success get comped on that or does it go to the AE for the account? Yeah. But you know, I think to answer your question, I think it's still early precinct reporting here on is this really, you know, like sales enablement, which has been, you know, for the last decade, you know, everybody kind of head acknowledges it's important, but you know there's the old saying you can tell a corporate you know corporation set of priorities based on you know where they spend their money and and where they do their hiring so you know staffing and budgets tell you where priorities are when i see customer success properly staffed and budgeted like sales enablement across various industries i think we've arrived but for sure it is important but it's got to be for more than the short-sightedness of well if we can't get new acquisition let's just suddenly get interested in customer success to protect revenue churn yep. i would hope yeah that's one of the great end by products of doing customer success right but there's all those other things getting mm-hmm. those customers to participate in content all the other things that you need to fill your revenue engine because you you know i would argue marketers who can't get their customers to engage and salespeople that can't get a customer to give them a reference call life gets pretty damn difficult in, in trying to drive revenue. So you, it's more than, and it tells you something about your relationship. Team of churn. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because here's the other thing is likes typically run together. And if, if you're selling to the CIO who golfs with five other CIOs on the weekend yeah. in similar industries, and they love what, you know, what you're doing and how you're over serving them, there's a good chance that two of those other four CIOs may be falling out of love with their current vendor. And it's an easy referral in the clubhouse, right? Figuratively
0: speaking. It's like financial planning, wealth management, Uh a lot of these industries that are so heavily referral driven. But, you know, it's interesting that like, you know, in all the organizations I've worked with and, and have worked for, I have always found it very easy to talk to customers and say like, hey, we want to get your perspective on this. We want to put you on a panel. We want to get you, et cetera, et cetera. It's always been strange to me that the organization doesn't proactively do that. And I'm like, what you have to realize is that you are also providing the customer value you're highlighting that they're doing something different, they're smart, you know, they've had success and they want that. And so anytime a marketing leader is hesitant to you know, engage customers in that way, I'm just always curious of like, you know, are you concerned that you're not gonna get a good response? Which also is a good thing. It tells you that like your relationships aren't like you think they are. So I right. think it's really low hanging fruit. It's super easy to do. And most customers, if they've been a customer for a while and are happy, usually look at it as an opportunity to get up and you know, on stage and, and show how amazing they are and what they're doing and that sort of thing. So to your point, I just think it's a really easy win. Well, let's go back to your podcast here, positioning around revenue engine. So let me tie it to revenue.
1: So think about industries. I'll use tech, but certainly you know banking and some of those aren't as is, is high in turnover and tenure, yeah. but there are certain ones that are. So whether it's every two years or it's every five years or whatever, people move jobs, right? So you're a vendor and you've got, I don't know, make a number up. You've got 2,000 customers in your database. And if, you know, every fourth year, the head of marketing or sales or whatever that you sell to or head of IT, whatever, moves to another company, that's an easy play to go in and get that business, right, unless they're already an existing customer. So if during that three prior years... You've had that IT director on for a podcast. You've helped build their personal brand. Maybe they got them the promotion to VP of DevOps or whatever, right? If they are high character, they'll remember who kind of helped them get where they got to, right? So it's easy to say, hey, and I've had this happen in my own professional career with, I won't name the company, but a multi-billion dollar tech company senior director in the u.s gets promoted to vice president in europe he moves his family over to europe he's headquartered in france he calls me and says hey steve i'm now the vp of x division and i want to let you know this is when i had my marketing consulting firm he said you guys did such a great job for three years making me look like the rock star in the u.s i want to take you in and let's keep this party going with the European division of his, you know, same company this time, but, but new divisional opportunity, it turned out to be $3 million a year of business, simply helping this guy be successful. And it set him up for that new endeavor. So when you get the, churn particularly in high churn industries if people jump into a new you know role every every two to three years yeah. um or you know with all the tech layoffs that have happened in fall of 2022 those folks hopefully will be landing somewhere in spring summer 2023 those brands that built genuine relationships for all the right reasons not just for the purchase order but they were genuinely maybe trying to help the, those individuals in building those relationships Matt, it's an easy way when those folks land
0: in their new role to get an access point in the door to create another sale. Yeah, no, it's 100% right. I mean, you made me think of an instance where I worked with this company that was struggling with getting leads and and quality leads and was really evaluating uh, whether or not they should be going to conferences because they would go because they felt like they were obligated. And if they weren't there, it, it almost portrayed them as like not being relevant. And when I really looked at kind of their approach, I said, there's a couple of things I see, and this is obviously pre-COVID, so take that with the context of, of how I say this. I said, instead yeah. of just having a booth where you're spending money to basically just stand there and try to talk to people, you really should be speaking at the conference. In the particular conference they were going, uh, you really only paid for the booth, you didn't pay for stage time, right? And so I said, you need to be really getting your right. message out and being a thought leader because you, you have a unique solution that people don't really quite understand or know about. And so it should be about your approach versus your brand. Obviously, they'll know that you're that you're here from XYZ company, et cetera, et cetera. And and then I said, you've got to make it not about you, but you've got to make it about your customers that have achieved success. And so I said, you need to go up, present a panel, have a couple of your ICPs represented on stage. And you lead that conversation so that you attract people that are, you know, they had a couple of different ICPs, but I said, try to get the ones that you feel like a low hanging fruit that will immediately get the value uh, that you provide. Have them on stage, facilitate a conversation, have them give examples they feel comfortable with of how, you know, you've helped them change the way that they go about their business. And I said, this is where you'll get leads in the room and people will come up to you and want to have a conversation. And I said, that's the way you can turn, you know, turn things around. Uh, with going to conferences and not just stand in front of a booth and say like, "Hey, you want to learn b- more about us and and you know have potentially irrelevant conversations because we know how that goes even prior to COVID, but you know that really was a yeah. game changer for them of yeah. really moved, shifting to that that idea of thought leadership, educating versus selling per se.
1: Well, and to the point we talked about earlier is acting like a talk show host where even the pressure's off to have any thought leadership you're facilitating thought leadership. You got it. You actually don't as the brand have to have anything earth shattering to say, but you're putting two or three people on a panel who are probably more interesting than you as the vendor anyway. So take the pressure off yourself. Just be up there to moderate, right? This is what I'm saying. It's so easy, but it's it's almost like so hard because people are convinced back to this control issue. I've got to control the narrative. I got to control the airtime. I got to control everything. You actually don't. And what's ironic, and you and I didn't talk about this prior to coming on this podcast this week, one hour before we're doing this current recording right now, I got a call from a tech company and the guy says, hey, um, I saw you speak at Immersive Industrial Week, which is a big kind of metaverse, XR, heavy industry, robotics, all this stuff show that happened um, end of August, 2022, several months back. And he said this very thing, he said, the panel that you assembled and the kind of command that you had and just bringing these people into the conversation, blah, 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 was unbelievable. He goes, I was so impressed. I wanted to find out if you're available to help me and our firm, right? It's a startup, but it's a, it's a funded startup with a, a very interesting piece of technology that they're applying for a patent on. And so this guy, Jeremy and I had a conversation for about 30 minutes right before this. And he said, Hey, I'd love to send me an invoice let's put a retainer in place we'd love to have your go-to-market help and and i didn't and the irony is i didn't go to immersive industrial week to do that yeah. was actually working on behalf of a client and and one of the things he wanted me to do was lead a, a tech round table on how ar and vr and the industrial metaverse is going beyond the hype and talking about real examples in energy and heavy industry of real like game-changing stuff going on i'm not an expert but I facilitated a panel of experts, and out of it, the serendipity is a phone call yep. that cost me a zero cost of sale. And so the irony of what we're talking about, this is unscripted. This call happened, a phone log right here on the iPhone, if, if need be. It's what happens. Yep. So am I helping people buy, or did
0: I have to sell anything, right? So it, it, it really works. And people underestimate the power of that facilitator role. To your point, when done well, you are seen by the audience as a subject matter expert, whether you are or not, right? Your ability to engage with those on the panel and sound intelligent, respond to them, segue between topics. People will judge if you do that well, and I've seen it done not well, but if you do that well, the the, the assumption of the audience is that you right. are yeah. an expert, right? And it's only those that get on stage and really kind of- It's cannot. a halo effect. It totally is. It totally is. It's, but it's the ones that can't really- segue between, you know, guests and, and understand the topic enough to really be able to add some fodder to it. Those are the ones where you're just like, they're just on stage, just facilitating a conversation. But the ones to your point, which I know, you know, I know, and have seen, yeah. you know, speak that really get it and really, you know, pull insights out of folks. If I don't know you, I'm assuming like, oh, he's also an expert. That's why he's on stage. And to your point, you position yourself without having to say anything as somebody that also should be considered as, you know, potentially helping you with your, your problem or whatnot.
1: Yeah. You know, you take that into the online, the space, like we talked about 15 minutes ago or so in this dialogue, you go back to communities, you go back to Slack channels, you go back to groups and all these places where for a vendor, your best customer prospects, right? Your buyers are turning to one another for advice on how to frame up and think about a problem. Maybe they're, Hey, we're thinking about integrating this piece of technology in our martech or ad tech or sales tech stack. Or we're thinking about, this type of supply chain, they're looking for, hey, what's your experience? No different if you're buying a new car, a pair of snow skis, a pair of running shoes. We all turn to people we trust, right? It is so simple. And brands have such a massive opportunity in 2023 amidst flat world economic conditions to go back and really introspectively say, look, there's probably some things that they're doing are working quite well. Okay. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But this whole idea of we need to control all this narrative, and it comes even down to back SDRs and BDRs and AE communications and marketing LinkedIn ads that are all about the gated white paper and everything else. It's like, folks, time out. Most of your ICP audience is tuning that out yeah. because that's not where they're going to get real answers to their questions. They want to be heard. They want to be acknowledged. And then they want to be advised. Educate them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And invariably, you do that well, and they're going to remember where they got that. Any other flaws that you see in currently how B2B companies are going about the revenue strategy? Just any other ones that are top of mind that folks should be thinking about?
1: Yeah. So about 15, 20 minutes ago in the segment, I said there are two things. And I said, for right now, I'm going to talk about one. We're going to come back to the second. And I anticipated we might get here. So the second flaw is, the first one, again, is a quick kind of recast is, You need to be looking at to to drive healthy revenue streams at healthy acquisition strategy, the retention strategy, the expansion strategy, and the advocacy loyalty that helps make life easier for your sales and marketing teams because those happy customers appear in content panels, all the things we just talked about. So the second one, uh, Jeff, that I've seen is let's go back up front to the front of that process, acquisition. There is an unhealthy reliance across virtually every industry where I'm talking with leadership and it's about six or eight industries right now. I'm actively consulting, advising, or, or in some capacity. Okay. And that is within acquisition. I went back to you'll see a company's priorities by staffing and budget. It's all on capturing demand, not creating demand. Mm. So for basics here, for those that you know, may be confused on the concept, right? Marketing is a long-term activity. Sales is a short-term activity. Marketing goes out and educates the market. That's why there's that root of that word, marketing. (laughs) It's market, right? Yeah. Um, Where sales, the root of that word is selling. So marketing's job is not to collect a bunch of email addresses on forms so people in sales can pound them over the head. Because the fact is we have tools in Zoom info lists and all kinds of ways to go get email addresses. Capturing an email address or a progressive profile form in a Marketo cadence is not marketing. Marketing Mm -hmm. is educating a market to do a couple of things. Create awareness for your brand and your product because people don't buy from companies that they don't know exist, right? They don't buy solutions if they don't know they don't exist. Exactly. So you've got to create an awareness. You got to create awareness first. And the second thing you have to do is create preference, right? So I'm aware of a lot of car brands but it doesn't mean I'll buy them. I'm aware Mm -hmm. of a lot of restaurants. It doesn't mean I'll eat there. Jeff, the same thing I'm sure with you. So awareness doesn't equal demand. You have to have awareness and you have to have preference. I'm aware of the solution in the vendor. And I prefer, I have a favorable way that I think about them in my mind when I'm in market to buy their category. So awareness and preference. So what does that do? When that buyer has a, a trigger event, that causes them to go in market to start looking for your category, they beeline, they go to you. Now, that shows up in direct internet traffic, a DM, right? A direct message to maybe yeah. somebody in LinkedIn that they're in their network. Hey, Jeff, I'm thinking about maybe, you know, who in your company should I talk to? You know, certainly hitting the sales, you know, a form on a website and I want to talk to a sales rep, online chat, right? But there, there's a variety of three or four or five ways that obviously when somebody's declaring intent, they can contact the brand. Here's what's happening, though, and has what has been happening really since the first kind of serious decisions demand waterfall in the late 2000s. And then we've mm-hmm. got a 10 to 15 year window of the entire MarTech community wanting us to automate everything, including, you know, drift bots and everything else Th- And is a little sidebar on this because I hate it. I'm going on record now. What brand can create authentic relationships with people, but then you're going to create automation and robots and in, in JavaScript? to talk to the prospect. I mean, it's the thing we all hate. Does any of us really like being put on hold or going through menuing systems? We want real relationships with real people to answer real questions. But what what do we do on the vendor side? Oh, I don't want to talk to anybody. Customer service automated. Let's not talk to people. Lead gen, let's not talk to them. You know, people have a legit question on our website. Oh, let's create a script and let a, a bot do it, right? A chat bot. So anyways, I digress. But we come back to this unhealthy issue. Marketing departments for the last 10 to 15 years, particularly in technology, but not exclusive to tech, are basically doing digital selling. They're not creating the future revenue pipeline. Six months, okay. nine months, 15 months down the road. You know what they're doing right now. You know what they're doing. You live it. I live it, Right. Hey Jeff, if you're a marketing leader, what have you done lately? Like in the last 72 hours to put leads over into into the bucket for the sales team. So guess what everybody does? They all cheat, right? The MQLs aren't MQL'd anything. They're marketing hypothesized leads at best, right? We take downloads of content as a signal of declared intent. It's inferred intent at best. We think because they're downloading things or attended a webinar, they're interested in buying. Those aren't buying signals folks those are not buying signals. So marketing has to has to be given the license, the authority, the staff, the budget and above all the patience by senior management where they say, "Look, I've got to fill my pipeline this quarter to keep the analysts happy or the VCs." Mm-hmm but every quarter I'm back at this place, right? Every quarter it's, I got to fill this quarter. So you got to be doing like two swim lanes in a pool. You've got to have demand creation and demand capture. You've got to be creating demand, which is awareness and preference in your category. And then building this educating. You started off by saying, are we selling or helping people buy? Well, demand creation is about helping people buy. It's educating. It's being persistent in these channels that we've talked about, dark social, podcast, the example you gave, et cetera. Demand capture is, okay, I'm in market. I've got a need. I'm evaluating alternatives. Then sure, there's certain marketing and sales motions that you go through to capture the demand. Here's the problem that a lot of marketing and revenue leaders, uh, I won't say marketing, but revenue leaders don't realize. If you don't create demand, somebody else is. So if you're yeah. not creating awareness yeah. and preference for your solution, your competitors are creating awareness and preference for their solution. So here's the yeah. thing now. Steve is Joe Buyer with a million dollar PO for a piece of tech says, well, Jeff's company has done a hell of a job of educating me over the la- last eight to nine months how to think about my problem untapped or unrealized opportunity gains that I could maybe capture in the market to help me quantify and think about pains that have been, I've been struggling with for two years, maybe how to solve it. Jeff has shown me a way to actually buy his category, how to think about how to vet vendors himself and his competitors. this whole thing. So look, when I'm entering the market six months from now, cause I engaged with Jeff's marketing materials or sales guys, yeah. when I enter the market, who's one of the brands I'm going to think about or solutions can be Jeff's. Now, if I'm over here trying to compete with Jeff, Guess what? I'm stuck doing. I don't make the vendor shortlist, you know, number one. And number two, then I have to spend my way to Jeff's frontal lobe. You know, how I have to do that. Very expensive keywords. Yep. Right. Very expensive content syndication plays that don't work. Very expensive $40,000 to get a speaking spot because I got to make, you got four weeks left in the quarter. And I, you're competing, particularly with paid media in a very crowded space where the ad inventory and the, and the keywords are very, very expensive. And the problem is, you're coming in really, really late, like Gartner and Forrester tell us when buyers are anywhere from you 60, know, 70% the way through their buying journey, right? Doesn't matter whether you believe those numbers 100%. But the fact is, they are. They're, they're going to Slack and Revenue Collective and these other communities, deciding kind of on the vendor shortlist, then reaching out. Now, the vendor that didn't create the demand, create preference, awareness, engage, they're left out and they're trying to yeah. buy. Jeff, you know, is the buyer or me as the buyer, you're, they're trying to buy our eyeballs by pushing a, an ad in our LinkedIn feed, hoping in the 11th hour, we'll say, oh, there's a piece of tech that happens to be this piece of tech I'm looking for. Yeah. But look, at the end of the day, once somebody's got that short list three, four, five, they're not going to vet anymore, they're busy, they're going to find the solution and move on to the next one. And then they'll go justify their decision with any one of the software eval sites or whatever, the, you know, whatever it may be. So anyways, a little bit of rant there. But to kind of wrap it up, too much reliance on demand capture, not enough budgeting and focus on demand creation. Demand creation is your future pipeline. It's not this fluffy thing that you know the CEO says, well, I don't want to go spend money on educating the market. Where's the ROI? The ROI is it shortens your sales cycles and it fills your pipeline because you're helping to influence them to pick you versus a competitor two, three, four quarters down the road when you're having the same conversation, three weeks to go in the quarter and I got to make... "Quote this quarter." People have been trying to make "quote this quarter" for a hundred years. Yeah, every quarter we're back in the same place. So, are you going to build your future pipeline or let your competitor
0: dictate your future pipeline? Yeah, Steve always love it. I think that's a great way to book in our conversation. If folks want to find you, get in contact with you, follow up with you, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Yeah. Well,
1: of course, you and I are connected on LinkedIn. If they're connected with you, they'll find me, but it's Steve Patty. I'm located in Austin. So you can geolocate that name in that city. Find me on LinkedIn and or a simple email, stevepattycmo at gmail.com.
0: Yeah. Well, Steve, I always really, really value your opinion. You're able to look across both sales and marketing and, and think about things differently. And I think that our conversation is really going to, if nothing else, get people to think about how their go-to-market strategy, their revenue strategy may be flawed and some of the things that they can do today uh, to set them up for success in 2023 and beyond. So I appreciate you again for being on the show and look forward to connecting with you soon and maybe having you on the show again.
1: Yeah, Jeff, let's not uh, wait another four
0: years, man. It was my pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. Agreed. All right, take it easy. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Red Engine Podcast. I hope today's episode provided you with some actionable insights that will help you begin the process of transforming your organization to a high-performing revenue engine. If you found today's episode valuable, we ask that you support the show's growth in three ways. First, share the episode with your friends and colleagues. Second, follow me on social media at Meet Jeff Davis on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. And finally, give us feedback on who you'd like to see on the show next. That's all for this episode. We look forward to having you join us next time where we continue the conversation on how to build a high-performing revenue engine.